Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, May 26, 2023. I'm your host, Brian Peter Angelo, and welcome to the podcast. As we head into the three-day weekend that ends with the Memorial Day holiday on Monday, I believe it's vitally important to honor those who died in military service for our country, the actual purpose of the holiday. With origins dating back to 1866 and with Congress making it an official holiday 55 years ago in 1968. Freedom is not free in our great country. And again, we honor those who made the ultimate sacrifice. And with me today, I'd like to introduce our panel of investing experts here to provide their insights on this week's market activity and more. George Mateo, Chief Investment Officer, and Adar Bajwa, Director of Multi-Strategy Research. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our Key Questions article series addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. In addition, if you have any questions or need more information, please reach out to your financial advisor. Taking a look at this week's news, we had four key items of interest. First, the Fed came out with its meeting minutes from their May 3rd meeting earlier this month with a unanimous decision to lift interest rates at that meeting. However, the indications for the June meeting decision seem to be a little bit split as to whether they would raise interest rates or not, and we continue to hear more about that from Fed governors in the news. And second, yesterday, the second estimate for the first quarter 2023 real GDP for the country came out and had a slight increase with the revised estimate going up to 1.3% from the 1.1% estimate last month. And third, initial unemployment claims came out yesterday as well, and the number stayed fairly consistent with the prior week, so no real news there. And fourth, just this morning, personal consumption expenditures data came out that showed there was increase in personal consumption expenditures for April at an uptick of 0.8%. However, on the other side of that coin, we talk about inflation, otherwise known as PCE inflation for the Fed's preferred measure, and we saw some unfavorable news, so to speak, in that the inflation number went up for the 12-month year-over-year number in terms of overall PCE at 4.4% versus 4.2% last month, and excluding food and energy, it also went up to 4.7% versus 4.6%. So that's one of the data points that will provide fuel for the Fed to make its decision, along with a couple other reads on jobs and another CPI print before their meeting on June 13th and June 14th next month. And finally, outside of the economic news, but certainly newsworthy, we have more conversations around the debt ceiling, and that continues to linger on, although various people say that they are making, in fact, progress. Nonetheless, there is a hiatus a little bit for the Memorial Day holiday, so we'll continue to see how good or bad this gets next week with respect for the debate closing and getting to some type of resolution or getting further apart. So stay tuned. So, George, taking all this into consideration, what are your thoughts with respect to the overall economy and possibly the debt ceiling in terms of what your thoughts are? Let's go forward. George? Well, why don't we take, take the uh, the debt ceiling issue first, Brian? I think that uh, that's certainly gotten a lot of attention and a lot of ink has been spilled trying to kind of figure out where we are with that. It's it's still, unfortunately, kind of a, a very fluid situation as we head into the holiday weekend. I think Congress is officially adjourned. 
Um, that's actually probably a good thing, though, that since it kind of clears out a lot of the distractions so that the, the final negotiation, negotiation, negotiations, excuse me, can, uh, can get addressed perhaps by those people that are most focused on this. I think it also suggests that maybe the odds of, of, of an accident, so to speak, are probably increased a little bit. Um, there's a chance that we get to that X date, which is still somewhat unclear. There's been some ongoing debate as to whether or not we actually might trigger the X date. You know, we've been dealing with this situation, though, frankly, since early January of this year. People might forget that, but this is something that we could have addressed, you know, six months ago, perhaps, but we haven't. So unfortunately, I think the odds of some accident have uh, have increased a little bit. I think this might be, you know, the longer that persists, the, the odds of a recession go up. Um, you might actually see some some sell-off in, in equities, um, more so than we've seen this week. And ultimately, I do worry long-term that this does does some damage to the, the American reputation on the global stage. So we're not at that point yet. I don't want to overemphasize that. I still think we're going to get um, the debt ceiling limit lifted, um, which will probably be good, maybe a bit of a relief rally. But we have to contend with the fact that our political system is still pretty fractured. And this is not a solvency issue. Again, this is more of a political issue uh, that creates volatility. And again, if we look back at what we saw in 2011, markets, you know, after the event uh, took place and we, we did see the debt ceiling limit raised, uh, markets did rally a little bit, but they really kind of chopped around for the next six weeks or so thereafter. And, uh, and that could probably um, be the case this time around. In other words, we might, we might see a short-term relief rally, but it might be short-term. Um, again, I think longer term, we've got some other issues to think about. You know, I think you talked about some of the economic readings uh, that were out this morning. I think we learned a lot this week, though, in the sense that um, some of the old news came out and suggested that the, the GDP in the first quarter was a bit stronger than expected. Frankly, consumer spending was one of the reasons why that was the case. Uh, but more recently, some of the more recent data points suggest that the consumer is in pretty good shape. At least they're, they're, they're feeling good anyway. Um, home sales actually were surprisingly strong this past week. Uh, you mentioned the fact that the labor market showed continued uh, signs of strength. Some of the distortions we saw in the prior few weeks have actually been eased and kind of normalized, and it does kind of reveal the fact that the labor market is still pretty healthy. And then this morning, I think the big thing, the big report for the week anyway, suggested again, more evidence that the consumer is quite strong. Uh, so you talked about the fact that personal income was up month over month about four, uh, 40 basis points, which is a pretty good reading. Consumer spending was up twice that. So income up four tenths of 1%, uh, spending up eight tenths of 1% suggests that people are accelerating their spending going into the summer. Uh, it also kind of reversed the prior two months, which was pretty weak, frankly. Um, we had kind of a lull uh, in kind of that uh, February, March, April period of time after a strong January, but spending has picked up a little bit. And it was also broad-based. I mean, we saw some pretty good strength, um, you know, from the, the good sector as well as services. Everybody knows that services spending, like travel and restaurants, has really picked up, but goods spending was also pretty robust. So I think the inflation data, um, you know, kind of suggests that overall it's kind of inflected higher. Um, I kind of think this means that the Fed's vacation has probably been postponed. We thought prior to this week we might see the Fed actually be on pause for much of the summer, but you know, again, given the numbers this morning, we might suggest that the Fed might take to have to take a, an early early end of the vacation uh, and address some of the ongoing inflation pressures. I think the Fed though is also still waiting for uh, probably some slowdown in lending. Um, because of some of the financial pressures in the banking system. And I think those have not been fully resolved. So I think the Fed is kind of curiously watching to see how that might kind of play out. That might actually um, alter their inflation forecast as well. It hasn't happened just yet, but we do have to keep an eye on that. And I think one segment of the economy that's probably might be a beneficiary from a slowdown in lending is actually the, the private credit market. Private lenders have actually been around for quite some time. Uh, the market is somewhat um, somewhat opaque in the sense that people don't know much about it. So I'm really excited to bring Arthur Bajwa into our conversation this morning. And Arthur, maybe you could begin by just walking people through what private credit really is. So maybe kind of demystify that for us. 
All right, thank you, George. So a business in need of funding can usually raise capital through one of two ways. One is, of course, by issuing equity, that is they're selling part of the company, or they can raise capital by uh, raising debt, which means you're borrowing money in exchange for interest payments and promise to pay back the loan at some point in the future. Larger organizations can typically raise debt through the public markets, that is they issue publicly traded debt that are listed um, in some sort of exchange or trade in the marketplace. For smaller privately held organizations, the ability to seek public market uh, borrowing is usually not possible because they're too small for that. So they have one of two options usually. One is either go to a bank and borrow money like uh, typically they've done for thousands of years, or increasingly they're, they're moving towards what we refer to as private credit which is a privately negotiated loan, which is not generally available for the uh, investing public to get access to. Now, private credit has a lot of different names. People call it alternative lending, alternative debt, uh, alternative funds of financing, et cetera, et cetera. We generally refer to all of those together combined as private credit. So uh, in simple terms, private credit simply refers to lending and borrowing activities that take place outside the traditional lending systems, such as banking, and publicly issued debt. It is typically provided by alternative lenders such as dedicated private capital firms, hedge funds, and syndicated organizations. Private credit is usually arranged through private negotiations where a borrower and one of a few lenders sort of come together, have a negotiated agreement, and then a loan is issued in the terms that is acceptable to both the borrower as well as the lender. These institutions typically provide financing to borrowers who like I mentioned, do not have either access to traditional bank or have specific needs that a typical bank or other funding institutions, traditional funding institutions cannot provide. Um, it might sound somewhat esoteric. However, the private credit or private lending market has grown significantly over the past several years due to lots of factors, such as the negotiated terms that are unique to the lender and the borrower, the ability to set these uh, payments up in case of distress, and also more very importantly, regulatory changes that we've seen over the past 15 years or so, including the, the great financial crisis, as well as some of the other market-related volatility we're seeing right now. For lenders, why would they offer private credit? Well, there's several benefits associated with uh, investing or providing capital to these private organizations versus publicly traded fund. For example, it can provide better protection in case of market distress. It also has ability to provide higher returns because you're generally lending at much better terms and higher interest rates. And then of course, there are great diversification benefits because these loans tend to be low, tend to have low correlation to traditional markets, both equities as well as fixed income. For private creditors, it's really the flexibility to to access the market, to access these kind of loans or uh, be flexible versus what they're traditionally able to do in case of public debt or private debt. Uh, so why should investors consider private credit? Well, generally, while there are concerns about just liquidity, because these are not publicly available debt that you can trade in and out of any given day, what you do get on the alternative side is better protection when markets are volatile and also better total return protection potential because you're lending at a higher rate 
to companies that traditionally have been able to pay these back on a very timely basis. So it sounds like for the investors, you're right to acknowledge that they are giving up some liquidity, but they're also getting a much higher coupon, higher yield, right? Uh, and they also have something that's kind of unique in their portfolio in the sense that it doesn't move around as much as other things do, right? So that provides some diversification benefits. How would you think about, uh, how, how do people fit these type of investments in the portfolio? How do they think of them in the context of the broader portfolio? What are they trying to achieve with private credit that they can't otherwise do? So George, uh, as you mentioned, the benefit really of private credit is twofold. One is the potential for higher return. And the second is we generally have better protection on the downside. So what does higher yield mean? Well, you're doing a negotiated deal. So generally you can have certain covenants in place that you don't have access to as a typical lender or typical investor in corporate bond that trade on the market. So for example, you can put in place certain restrictions that if the profitability of the company falls, then the company cannot make a dividend payment. They can, in case of market distress, uh, lenders can force uh, organizations to uh, make some cuts as far as the, the, the growth that they've uh, penciled in or uh, uh, reduce expenses in many different ways, including reducing salaries and cutting the dividend off completely. So there are lots of uh, items that pub public borrowers do not have access to that private credit markets do provide you in case of market distress. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen consistently over uh, last couple of decades that private credit tends to perform better in terms of market distress than it does in term than uh, public markets do because over there, you're takers uh, of whatever the underlying conditions are versus here, you can dictate your terms in case certain thresholds are met which we call covenants uh, in, in the underlying uh, loans that, that you're making. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, the real benefit of private credit really is the much higher coupon that you can get in private markets versus public markets. Traditionally, depending on the kind of borrower, the kind of term, the kind of conditions you're looking at, it can be anywhere from 50% to 100% higher coupon, higher interest payment than you would get in a public market. Uh, for high quality uh, borrowers. And then of course, for companies that might be um, a little bit in distress, it could be multiples of that. So we think overall the risk return profile for some investors, obviously this is like any other investment, not for everyone uh, is very appropriate. Now, who should not uh, invest in it or what are some of the considerations you should have before uh, thinking about investing in private credit? But first, as you've already mentioned, George, these investments tend to be illiquid. They do not trade in public markets. Generally, when you make a private loan, it is held for maturity until the company makes a payment or some other capital market event happens. So they tend to be illiquid. Um, so investors should consider that before making an investment in these, uh, in these kind of offerings that if you want your capital back today, it's unlikely you'll get it back. It'll, it's a negotiated deal. So it really is a multi-year investment horizon that you should be considering. The other issue that generally can come up uh, is transparency. So these are private loans to private companies. You can't go to their website and look at the balance sheets and income statements and sort of find out exactly what it is they're doing or their long-term plans or goals are. These are privately negotiated deals. So generally speaking, these private companies do offer a lot of uh, financial documents, uh, including access to top management, to the lenders, but not to the general public. So if I want to know 
exactly what this company that I have lent money to um, and want to have access to all of the financial data, I will not have access to it. I really need to go to the fund manager or whoever the lending uh, partner that I've, I'm working with to provide me some um, form of transparency. But again, even that case, it could be limited because of the uh, negotiated terms that the lender and the borrower sort of have in place. So just keep in mind that generally transparency here will be a little bit less than what you would do in a publicly traded uh, corporate typical bond that you'll be looking at. Now, of course, the, the final sort of risk that we underwrite to is credit risk. Every lending uh, that, that anybody does, whether it's a public market or in case of private credit, there's some sort of credit risk involved. Your lending money and economic conditions might change. The items specific to the company might change, which could negatively impact our ability to sort of take in the, the interest and for the company to sort of follow through on paying its loan. Um, so it is a risk that borrowers and lenders sort of uh, deal uh, get into when they make a deal because things could change. So that is another um, key consideration, but that's a risk that's available anywhere in the, in the market, whatever you do uh, lending. Here, it can become a little bit more pronounced because again, you don't have the transparency associated with the corporate bond market. Um, so it might be a little bit more difficult for a typical investor to try and understand exactly what the credit conditions um, I'm getting uh, involved with. So it's very important to work with the right manager and the right team to invest in this space who can provide you that transparency and also have great ability to underwrite um, these loans. So one final question for you, other than we'll close the conversation today. Is it fair to say there's an easy parallel for our listeners to understand where if you're investing in equities, you might have a position in public equities and private equity, as well as on the credit side, you could have public debt and then private credit. Does that make sense from a portfolio construction perspective? Uh, yes, Brian. Uh, from our perspective, we believe all of these options should be on the table. Of course, not all of these are appropriate for every investor. Um, so for clients or investors looking for diversification, who are looking for additional income that they can get in traditional public markets. For investors who are patient, long-term investors, we believe this is a very good asset class to consider alongside public equity, alongside private equity, alongside traditional fixed income, whether it's taxable or tax exempt, cash, um, alternatives such as real assets and uh, hedge funds, et cetera. We believe that adding private credit can enhance your risk return profile. Um, so we would, uh, encourage people who have a long-term viewpoint, um, who are looking for additional income, who are looking for diversification away from sort of the asset that they typically consider to give uh, this uh, asset uh, consideration that I think it's due. Um, private credit has not had the kind of publicity that we've seen, for example, private equity have. It's been an asset class that's been in existence literally for decades. Um, that investors have had access to. Private credit has almost exclusively been an institutional marketplace where much larger organizations, much sophisticated organizations could get access to these funds and typical investors could not. But as for all the reasons mentioned before, the market has changed considerably over the past decade and we can actually get access to many of these deals that were not available to the general investment public just a few years ago, let alone a few decades ago. Um, so, so this is a new and growing asset class that is already rivaling the uh, uh, corporate bond market. Um, and we think it will likely continue to grow given all the uh, availability of credit and also pressures to the traditional lending market that these 
uh, borrowers have have uh, sort of sought after for the past several years. Thanks for the conversation today, George and Ather. We appreciate your insights. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or financial advisor for more information, and we'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, key private client, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are provided by Key Bank National Association, a member of FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Key Private Bank and Key Bank Institutional Advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services, LLC, or KISS, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency, USA Incorporated, or KIA. KISS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investments and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not being guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. eBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decision. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2023.